0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Aval Cafe. My name is Brian Hosler, founder of Strong Roots Consulting, based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Metis. I'm joined as always by my co host.
1: Hi, everyone, I'm Carolyn Kamen, an independent evaluation consultant working out of Vancouver, BC, coming to you from unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil Waututh Nations territory. This podcast is an informal chat on evaluation topics, the kinds you might overhear at your favorite coffee shop if your favorite coffee shop were frequented by evaluators.
0: This podcast is for everyone, expert or novice, longtime practitioner, or just starting in the field. Even if you don't identify as an evaluator, as long as you have an interest in evaluation, this podcast is for you.
1: So, listeners, by now you've probably figured out that this podcast is a thinly veiled excuse for Brian and Carolyn, myself, which I just (laughs) said my name in the third person, for us to just basically hang out with our friends. That is entirely what this podcast is about. It is about friendship and the metaphor of coffee. And th- this particular episode, they're all special, but this one's very, very special because it's the one we're recording right now. Um, we have three guests. This is the only the second time that we've ever had three guests. Um, and they are all former guests of the podcast. And this podcast has come about basically because uh, these three guests all got to hang out with each other recently. And I was envious and I really wanted to be there. And I thought, well, wait, that's what a podcast is for. I asked Brian, hey, Brian, what if we try to get (laughs) these three amazing folks on our podcast and we can just all hang out together? Mm -hmm. And Brian's response was, that sounds like our kind of crazy, Um, which is both true and the new tagline of the Eval Cafe podcast. (laughs) Um, So... That's what you are getting today. I hope that you are going to enjoy it. I know I am absolutely going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole premise of this podcast is what happens when we get a bunch of cool people in a room to talk about evaluation, Um, which I think that's the meta um, premise of our entire podcast. But this episode in particular, it really was just like, if we can all get together, what happens when we talk about it? So I'm going to give each of our guests an opportunity uh, to introduce themselves, your name, where, where you're touching the ground right now, uh, where you're from, uh, and, and what you love about our podcast.
2: Hi. Um, uh, my name is Andy Johnson, although you might know me by my pen name, A. Raphael Johnson. Uh, and I am uh, the co-founder and vice president of Inspired to Change based here in Minneapolis and st. Paul Minnesota uh, we reside on Dakota and Ojibwe lands here and what I love about this podcast is that you can hear evaluators just letting our hair down if if you're not in the evaluation world you have no idea how <laughs> stuffy evaluation can be and this there are only two places where evaluators really get crunked and it's here and at the AEA dance.
3: The diversity dance. Yeah,
2: yeah, mm-hmm. the, uh, the diversity uh, TIG dance. Uh, so if the AEA conference is ever in your town, do one of those two things, that's it.
0: Great, thank you.
4: Nice. Well, um, my name is Chris Corrigan. I live on uh, a little island near Vancouver called Nechlelechwin, that's the old name. Uh, Bowen Island is the more recent name, um, which is in uh, Squamish T'ameo, Squamish traditional territory. Um, and I'm uh, I'm not an evaluator, um, although at this point now I get in trouble when I say I'm not an evaluator, or if I say I am an evaluator. Um, but I am the founder and and principal, along with my partner Caitlin Frost, of Harvest Moon Consultants, and we we work with complexity and and participatory leadership and participatory process. So we're facilitators for the most part, and evaluation creeps into our work because when we work in complexity, there's no difference between facilitating, leading, acting, planning, evaluating, and learning. It's all one big schmoosh. So my facilitation theory is really informed by um, evaluation. <clears throat> and I have quite a, quite a strange take on the evaluation world because my, my real best portal <laughs> for evaluation is Eval Cafe and and Carolyn. And so when Andy says that um, evaluation world is really stuffy, I just, I cannot validate that statement. <laughs> because I, I hang out with like really interesting evaluators that are doing really interesting things. And I'm super grateful that those are the people that I get to hang out with because they make my projects um, more interesting. And I think they... They make my clients more excited to be learning about the work that they're doing so um, i'm super happy to be with all of you guys here today
3: thanks chris and i'm nora murphy johnson um, co-founder and president of inspire to change also co-founder of terra luna collaborative Um, i am an evaluator and in the past i've been a very reluctant evaluator Um, i've I think I've participated in things as as an evaluator that I didn't fully believe in. And so what we're trying to do with Inspire to Change is change what evaluation looks like um, so that the purpose of evaluation is not better programs. The purpose of evaluation is a whole beautiful and just world. Um, And if we define it that way, then it just has to radically change what evaluation looks like. So we're not thinking inside the box or outside the box. We're building a whole new container. And that's what I love about Eval Cafe is um, I think you're contributing, in my experience, to a shared container, that your show definitely has a point of view, and that it's the point of view that often isn't central stage at evaluation events. So I I appreciate you building a new stage.
0: Great. Well, thank you all for, for your kind words. And glad to know we have at least three fans out there in the universe. So, and at least they're all here in the same room. So, that's great for, for a conversation. So, yeah. Uh, and, um, Mari, your introduction there, I think, is kind of perfect uh, jump off point to kind of our guiding question, um, the guiding idea for this episode. And we'll see kind of where it takes us. But uh, the question which Carolyn came up with, uh, they get full credit and full blame if it doesn't go well, is, uh, <laughs> what are we learning about what evaluation offers and what evaluation needs in times of great uncertainty and and great uncertainty and injustice? So, what are we learning about what evaluation both offers and needs in these times? And you know, as we were are talking today uh, in early March, you know, coronavirus is this, this big thing, a lot of uncertainty there, all sorts of other issues in the world. So, what does evaluation offer and need in these times?
3: Um. I'll I'll start, boy, I'm really drawn to the what does it need part of the question, but I'm going to try to start with what does it offer. Um, I'll say that what I have learned through my training and my practice as evaluator is to think systematically. And so in a world where there is uncertainty and injustice, I think we obviously don't know how to get to certainty or justice um, because one, maybe certainty isn't attainable. And justice is, um, injustice is rooted in so many contexts and ways and places that it's one of those sticky or wicked problems. Um, I don't think that we'll get to healing and solutions and justice if we're not thoughtfully learning together as we move forward in co-creating learning and meaning and shared vision. So what evaluation has offered me is a way to sort of break it down and make it less overwhelming and be systematic as we learn and share our learning and build our learning together as we move forward in uncertainty and towards justice.
4: Mm, that's juicy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, when you were talking there, Nora, I, was just, I just had this hypothesis go through my head is that injustice <laughs> is rooted in certainty. So actually
3: interesting right
4: so that there may be like a need for evaluation that keeps us in uncertainty so that okay. we can right. vector towards justice um i mean that that uh, and in fact i would say that, that that particular even thinking that way for me has been a gift mm. of diving into the evaluation world because as a facilitator I find that there's very little good theory in the facilitation world that helps guide us when we're working in uncertainty and complexity which is where I choose to work because I think that that's you know both the hardest places and the the places of most potential right because things are unstable and so um, and and I feel like the, the theory that I've Been able to incorporate into my facilitation practice comes a little bit from pedagogy and adult learning so how humans learn um, and then complexity theory and the only people that are really doing extensive work on complexity theory as it pertains to groups and human beings learning and moving forward are the subset of the evaluation world not the whole evaluation world but the subset of evaluators that are publishing really good research and doing stuff like that Um, And I think if we can adopt, I remember when Carolyn and I met, it was at a Michael Quinn Patton day when um, he was sharing his new framework around principles-focused evaluation. And uh, he said, uh, and Carolyn will remember me squealing when he said this, but he said that um, complexity is a theory of change. And I felt like, at that time, I just felt like, oh, finally, I've been waiting my whole life to hear that from people because it just opens up all the possibilities for us to be more human in the work we're doing. And so if complexity is the theory of change, then certainty is the unattainable goal. And anything that tend- trends us towards certainty, this is my, again, my little hypothesis, but you've inspired it. Anything that trends towards certainty may it may trend towards injustice, mm. that actually we need a more fluid and a more active in a more bubbling and creative world not one where we've locked down the answers to our biggest social problems Uh even though we have a desire to do that
1: Mm -hmm. right i'm gonna have to dig up the tweet but that's reminding me of i think it was maybe even a year ago but this idea around certainty and um and injustice of a lot of people come to evaluators i find i know i get approached by a lot of people um who are looking for certainty. They're, they're looking yes. to an evaluator to bring certainty to uncertainty. But my thought is that evaluation really inherently is about introducing more uncertainty. We're the people who are coming in and saying, and this is, I think, even really, I and mean, we're talking about people who are doing evaluation differently, but all evaluation really ought to be about, um, I mean, asking the question of like, you know, you say that this is what's happening. Is it really? And how do you know? And when you ask people what's happening and how, the, how do they know you are automatically introducing a crap ton more uncertainty,
4: right?
1: <laughs> um, like that's that's really what evaluation is about bringing mm-hmm. uncertainty. And yet so much of how we practice it is about putting things in little clear boxes and, and, and trying to bring more certainty. And I think that's where, that's where we get it really wrong. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, the idea that that's actually the thing bringing more injustice.
2: Yeah, you know, we mm-hmm. certainly, in my practice, I have seen people uh, want an evaluation to bring certainty to a very uh, complex process or or an inherently unstable process, um, and it's it's weird. It, it, it's sort of like some people think that if what they want to buy is currency, then evaluators are the way to buy that thing that they want, like the certainty that they want. And Mm. evaluation, I think when it's at its best, asks far more questions. um, And can't, it, it can't really deliver the kind of certainty that people want for the questions that we're taking on these days. I think if, your question is something rooted in sort of basic accountability. Like you're an arts organization, and you want to know how many people from, you know, this uh, zip code came and visited your space. Okay, sure, evaluation can do that. But if the question is, you know, how has this arts organization contributed to equity and justice and beauty in a community over a year? Um, that's a, it's a question that evaluation can help address, but, uh, bringing certainty to that is not, at least for me, it's not the goal. Um, it's really, um, Mm -hmm. getting into a, a dynamic iterative, uh, cycle where questions and answers are being asked of each other, um, on an ongoing basis rather than a sort of one and done basis.
4: That's cool. I, one of my, uh, one of my mentors, Dave Snowden talks about being in complexity is really acting in complexity is really about understanding the evolutionary potential of the present. So, you know, it's not about saying, you know, here, here's where we've come from. And so we stop, right. And that tells us about where we go ahead. He calls that the fallacy of retrospective coherence, right? Mm-hmm. You know, basically past performance doesn't guarantee future results. I can track past performance. That's really easy because actually I can, I can draw causal relationships between things we did and results we had looking backwards. But the, but the present moment contains its own evolutionary potential. And being able to feel it, be in it, um, offers pathways of action that we should probably try, like right now. So you know you do it. You do a five-year evaluation of an arts program that tells you about how to bring people in, and then coronavirus hits, and it's right. like, well, everything changed. Right. So that was an awesome evaluation, but now like we <laughs> have a pandemic, and we have to. So, you know, there's always so. But what's what do we learn from what people love about what we do, that we can enact uh, in a new context? Mm-hmm. And that to me, that's the key thing. When I'm when I'm when we're innovating or when we're working, let's say doing doing a lab or something where we have a bunch of people out trying different actions and seeing what happens. One of the things that where I use evaluation mostly is like documenting and understanding and making sense of the dynamics of the system. Like how does power work right. How do resources flow? What's, what's, what's considered um, acceptable or um, credible, right? Um, because acting in a system will tell you all about the constraints that you're working within and understanding and documenting those gives you the resourcefulness to be able to choose multiple different ways forward um and so when people ask me to document like the state of the system now i'm like that's not helpful what we need to do is make sense of the system together so that we have a set of principles or a set of things that will better inform our action because we know what the evolutionary potential of this particular system is. Does that make sense? It does,
3: and I related to mm-hmm. that, which I think we've all talked about before, is then one thing that we could be offering through evaluation is um, the building of relationships and networks that are strong and take us through turbulence. So if our strategic plans, if the papers we make aren't going to stand the test of time, what does? What is still standing on the other side of the coronavirus or what we've had here in the Twin Cities is a big loss in arts funding. So all of these arts organizations have been hit hard over the last Mm -hmm. few years, really in um, sometimes in just like that right there's no planning time there's no off-ramp or so what what gets people through um hard times and uncertainty where they can still view each other as support and with grace and that is the relationships and so what i'm learning as i go ahead is um and and actually this was part of co-founding Terra luna in the beginning is i realized that the most important ingredient in almost every effective um Evaluation I had done was the strength of relationships in the intervention, but no one had ever asked me to include the inquiry around relationships as part of the evaluation. And so what I had told myself is the only way I can stay in evaluation is if I can figure out how to do it in a way that puts relationships at the center. And I wasn't sure in 2012 if that was possible. Now, I it's absolutely possible, but it's still an outer edge idea, not a core. Mm -hmm. idea
2: and evaluation. And then thinking about the question, like, yes, like, what does evaluation offer and what does it need? Um, The kind of evaluation I do most often is arts-based evaluation. And I've been thinking a lot recently, not just about the methods. So if you haven't heard me talk about this before, arts-based evaluation uses the methodologies of the arts to collect data analyze data and report data um, but I've been thinking more about like why arts based evaluation should exist like what is what is the reason for that it has to be more I think than just a collection of of uh, sort of nifty methodologies or interesting methodologies and so I was thinking about uh, my when I teach writing, um, thinking about how I teach sentence writing and very basically, um, I think of the engine of a sentence as having three parts, the subject, the verb, and the object. The subject is, uh, some sort of noun, a person, place, or thing with the power to make change, uh, in the world. The object is the thing that gets changed mm-hmm. by the subject and the verb is to change itself. And so then in, sort of making that, thinking through that in an evaluative framework, I think of qualitative methods as really good at describing the subject, the who, Um, the culture that that person is in, uh, decision making, like all of that stuff. Quantitative methods are really good at describing the object, all the metrics that get moved, like all of that great stuff, and super important. Uh, But then evaluation still needs to describe change itself. We still need to describe transformation. We still need to describe active caring. We still need to describe like what that looks like and how people do that. And that is where I believe arts-based evaluation really has something to offer. Um, that's what the arts traditionally do really well. Um, and that is, you know, why arts-based evaluation should exist beyond that it's cooler than all other kinds of evaluation. It
3: really is. <laughs>
4: <face>. Oh, Andy. <laughs> yep. Yep. Now that I mean, I mean that's. So what's lighting up for me about that description is the the possibility <clears throat> that how we understand transformation. Um, and I'm just linking it to to what Nora just said, like how we understand transformation is cultural, completely cultural. Like I think about where where we live here on the West Coast, I mean, this entire coast, every culture on the coast has stories of transformers who come and do the work um, and who act on people or objects around them and create physical landscapes out of the combination of story, teaching and behavior. So the whole coastline here you can see is this kind of like summative evaluation of the journey of Heis, which are the transformer figures that have come through this territory where I live. Um, But I think the other piece too is that in in all of those stories that I hear, I also hear them dealing with the transformation that comes from relationships Mm -hmm. and the transformation that comes from inside people who change, who are able to change on their own. Mm -hmm. And who at one point offer a particular view of themselves, and at another point offer another view of themselves, and the transformers are like, oh, "We're cool with that." <clears throat> like at one time you're supernatural, and another time you're physical. It's like that's fine. Right. This is a Achilles' heel of a lot of facilitators and evaluators is to assume that what is being presented is the mm. only state.
3: Uh-huh. Yes, and that yes, the transformation
4: absolutely. change isn't <laughs> isn't happening all the time, and so um, and so that's kind of privileged by culture and then encoded in arts exactly. and in the way that we see things. and so exploring with different artistic modalities to exploring what a relationship looks like if we're not using words or what a relationship looks like if we take everybody out of the meeting room and we go to a mm-hmm. park mm-hmm. right? and we look after our kids together and then like there's more revealed in all of that super super interesting so i have a lot more to ask and say about that but that's what that's yeah. I kind of lit up and <laughs> Mm
1: -hmm. coming back around to that question and then thinking about uh everything that that we've talked about already this so what are we learning about about what evaluation offers and what evaluation needs in times of great uncertainty and injustice and not like not to be overly simplistic but there's a part of me that thinks oh there's a one word answer to this and that's complexity um Mm -hmm. i think evaluation for all that we uh are sometimes asked or have the 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 urge to simplify things, you know, we have this opportunity to actually, I just keep thinking about, I saw this RFP last night that I was like, oh, that's not my kind of project whatsoever. And it was very much this, like, we're, we're partway through a project, we have our theory of change, we have our indicators, we just want someone to come in and tell us, you know, how much, how close we are to, to what we said we were doing um over the last I think they've you know it's a it's a long multi-year project they're like halfway through a couple of years in. No doubt they've been doing a lot. I do not believe that they haven't had to adapt and change mm-hmm. and transform in all kinds mm-hmm. of ways over two years. There's no way that things have worked out exactly as they planned over two years and that any deviations are wrong. Like that's what mm-hmm. I keep thinking like, oh if you have someone mm-hmm. come in and do a a two-year evaluation that comes back and says, ah, actually, here's all the ways in which you aren't aligning with the theory of change you had two years ago. Here's all the ways in which the indicators you came up with two years ago aren't capturing what you do. That's just such a framework of failure, which is one that the way that we have practiced evaluation has made into, like, this is what evaluation is, this is the valid way of doing evaluation. You know, say what you're going to do and then do that, and we'll assess how well you're doing it. Um, when that's not really the way any of this works, so I just think about that's where I feel like this is both what we offer and what we need. I think mm. we we as evaluators or people who do evaluation, whether we call ourselves evaluators or not, because I don't think that's a requirement. Um, but when we're doing evaluation, we need to be thinking about how we show up because how we have been doing evaluation has affected how evaluation is done. <laughs> And yes. what people believe evaluation is, we have enormous mm-hmm. power and influence in that yes. way. And we have contributed to creating the field, the practice of, of evaluation as it is in the field right now, as, it, as as people who are trying to be evaluated or do evaluation are, are, are seeing it. In the actual like field of people who are doing evaluation, we are starting to see, oh, there's differences here we there are different ways to do this there are different approaches uh there are things that we can offer we can come in i think the the way arts-based methods work um so beautifully described there by by andy and by chris Mm -hmm. it's because they embrace and work in in complexity um because that's the space in which that uh makes sense i am not rambling but i just oh (laughs) i can't get over um just how much power we have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I don't know if we think about having to influence mm-hmm. what is happening. And that's something that we need to work on and also can offer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it strikes me that we kind of, on one hand, offer that, you know, wrapping back to the beginning of this conversation, we offer that uncertainty, we offer the complexity, but then we also offer new ways of conceptualizing that. We offer the relationship to say, like, yeah, it's it's big, it's scary if you're looking for a certainty and something you can just put on a grant application that we're doing awesome, you should give us all the money in the world to keep doing this stuff. Maybe the stuffy evaluation offers that, but we don't necessarily or we don't answer that with a huge caveat and asterisks and all sorts of explanations underneath that. But we do offer that we're going to be walking with you as part of that and we're going to be helping you transform that into something that could be contributing to to a broader truth and beauty. So it's it's a it's a it's a bargain and maybe that's something we need to do too is figure out how do we actually, you know, explain that so that people when they come in and think of as evaluators as stuffy and you know promoting certainty, which I don't which I think we've kind of figured out we're not doing that necessarily. So how do we how do we get that message across? Do we still kind of keep pretending to be a certainty people and just add little doubts and questions here, here and there, or do we kind of come in and say like, yeah, no, we're going to turn your stuff upside down and shake it loose and help rebuild it into something better.
3: I
2: want,
3: I want to say, um, as part of that power and with great power comes great responsibility is the way we think of it is we're Mm -hmm. not just going to dabble around. We are going to turn it on its head, but then we have the responsibility to helping them. Um, whoever they are, I'm thinking a leader, um to then work with their board to change expectations to work with their funder to work with their staff Mm -hmm. that we can't upend it without helping them um speak truth to all the systems that have held that in place because they can't lose because Mm -hmm. we upended right their funder can't say i don't know what this is you're not going to get refunded because this looks like crap to us or it looks like failure so Yes, we have great power to be disruptive, and we need to take responsibility for helping people to to letting people know what the potential ripples are of that, and then um, working with them through, like you said, walk with walk with them through their ripples. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about this with people, they often cry. And I think the reason people cry is because, in the first scenario you presented, Carolyn, we're all complicit in a lie if we pretend that those indicators made sense and that no changes has have been made and that this is still the right way to think about what the work takes, if that's what the program has to do or the initiative and we come in and we then participate in that ruse, no one feels good. I, I mean, I imagine we're all drawn to working with justice-driven people and to think that the only way we can pursue justice is to be complicit in a lie about what it takes feels terrible. Um, So there is a way to get out of it, but it's more than just disrupting it. It's also taking the responsibility for what that,
2: where that leaves people. Yeah. It really makes me think about the question of who is the evaluation for, you know, if Mm -hmm. evaluation primarily serves power and moneyed interests and people with a lot of access and education and, and, and power, mm-hmm. then frankly, uh, I don't know about y'all, but I don't need to work as hard as I am working. you know. Um, mm-hmm. if, if the goal of evaluation is to tell wealthy people that they are still wealthy and should not feel guilty about being wealthy, I, I don't need to issue a survey to do that. I can just write that right now, right? but for me, the goal of evaluation is helping people impacted by those systems make decisions about what to do with their lives. And that takes a really different framework and a really different way of thinking. Um, and, And of course, it can't be certain because we are not the people making these decisions. We can help them develop options and think about what they might want to do, but ultimately the power has to rest with them. Um, When I, uh, I did a project a couple of years ago where I worked with a group of homeless, uh, youth experiencing homelessness uh, to evaluate their own homeless center. And one of the things we did is we looked at theories of change Um, and I showed them a theory of change From a women's shelter in D.C., uh, but that particular shelter had also painted a mural on the outside of their building that pretty much depicted their theory of change. And I asked them, like, what the what the differences were, and what they immediately picked up on is that unless you are unless you were in a position of power in that shelter, so you were a counselor, you were a funder and evaluator, or someone like that, you would never see the theory of change. There's no, it's never posted. It's not for the people who are most impacted by it. But that mural, you could see it on the street. And then you have some agency about whether you want this thing to happen to you. It's not invisible. It's not all of these decisions that have been made on your behalf. It is you being part of the decision-making process. And that is a very different thing for Unfortunately, for a lot of evaluators and a lot of evaluation systems, I do think it's getting better, um, but I think it needs to tilt far more in that direction.
4: Hey, Andy, was that mural created by the women in the shelter or commissioned?
2: No, it was commissioned. Yeah. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I've seen really great examples of like community commissioned art. Uh, we talked to somebody a few weeks ago about a project they did where, um, they had community members design their own public monuments and then put them where they wanted them throughout the community and had this whole discussion about public art in that way. And we've seen like, you know, people just commission an artist to come in and paint the thing that they want. Um, you know, which leads somewhat into the, the discussion about uh, like creative city making and all that. Like, is it really, um, is it really including communities or is this just like very artistic gentrification and all that? But
4: yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, I mean, it kind of goes to Nora's point earlier too about if we're, um, if, if, if that mural represents your theory of change, then how do we, can we tell the story about how it was created also (laughs) you know, like how it exists as a relational artifact. Right. Because that, cause we made some change. How did it actually work? Oh, we commissioned it. It's like interesting. So that just gives us information about, Mm -hmm. you know, is that what we want to do? Do we want to commission services for this center or do we want to create them together? And you know, it just points to the evolutionary potential of the present. Like here's a mural I'm projecting of course, here's a mural that we commissioned and it tells our story. So there's like, I can find myself in the mural. I love the mural, right? But I didn't help create it. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's something in it that speaks to me, but it's also like there's something underneath it that's untrustworthy about it. And so, but if we don't evaluate like both both things, mm-hmm. then we, we kind of, we miss the evolutionary potential mm-hmm. of being able to say, oh, we can build more relational work into this, or we can build more ownership of the narrative into it as well. Um, that's fast that's just a fascinating uh, example I was'm um, really in, I'm actually really intrigued by this idea of accompaniment that you just talked mm-hmm. to sort of four of us have just mm-hmm. sort of raised here and this idea that um, like if you think about it, Carolyn, you said like we complexity complexity is the answer so I would say that's halfway true I think complexity is just an excuse to really invite us to talk about honesty and dignity. And because we can just if we if we say, look, it's complex and the uncertainty is here, then we can be honest about how none of us know what to do. Mm. That and we can dignify each other by saying all of our perspectives here are important. Like not only do they matter, but they're critical. If we're excluding perspectives and especially marginalized perspectives, we may be losing the secret seeds of of potential here. So the honesty and dignity that's required to deal with uncertainty, if evaluation becomes an accompaniment, right? So the certainty that's provided is not so much, here's the report, Mm -hmm. you know, go off and do it. But the certainty that's required is a kind of like accompaniment, it's a friendship, right? Mm -hmm. That we would walk together and occasionally, I can walk with you in a context that's not as difficult for me. And offer you questions, offer you guidance. So if I think about the uncertainty I've had in my own life, like as a human being, like the last thing I want is someone giving me a report. Right? <laughs> you know, here's how your life is turned upside down and here are the things you need to do. And here's how you've been spending your money, you know. Mm-hmm. What I want is a friend. Like what I need is some mates to sit down with me and, you know, share a beer or two and 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 help me make sense of like what's going on in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, we have those as human, like evaluation and complexity is just human beings making sense of things. And we have them. We know that we've evolved to find patterns and to express them symbolically, which is why, you know, the art thing is like super important, the art thing, which is why arts-based work is super important because it's a disciplined way of us making sense of archetypes and our symbols and the things that port so much power and significance into the public space for us to be able to talk about. And so if evaluators are are accompanists, um, you know, it allows, and then just as I say that I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a story about Mal Waldron. Do you guys know who Mal Waldron is? He's a piano player. He was, he was Billy Holiday's accompanist for many, many years. And I met him, uh, in nineteen in the early eighties I used to review jazz shows and he, he you know, you don't know who he is, right? But you know him because you know his music. Because if you've heard Billy Holiday, you've heard Mal Waldron, right? And he just provides the field in which she can like not worry about anything and fully express herself, her art, right? And herself. Um and, and Mal Waldron had this incredibly interesting thing happen to him in that at one point and I don't know when this was, sixties, seventies, he was in the middle of a performance and he forgot how to play. Like his brain just blew up and he just stopped. He, he was sitting at the piano and he didn't know what to do. He just forgot how to play. And, you know, he, when I was talking to him and this was again, like 1985 or six, probably in a show he did in Toronto, he was saying it was like he had to relearn piano from the beginning. And it was kind of like, wow, wow, like a whole other world opened up to him hmm. right? as he had to, as he had to relearn his art. And I, I kind of feel like, wouldn't it be nice as, Facil- experience facilitators and evaluators if we just at some point forgot <laughs> all the stuff that we think we know how to do and we had to start from being a human again. Right, right, right. Yeah.
1: yeah Chris, I, you're kind of describing uh, what my experience has been over the last couple of years which part of it has included uh, working with you um, and being introduced to some of the perspectives that you have and also being introduced to um, Andy and Nora your mm-hmm. work. Um, but some point over the last couple of years, I, I think it was just at an event that I was at, and, and I was there as an evaluator. But there were community members there, and they were asking me, "Oh, who, who are you? How how are you showing up here?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm not staff of the program," and I just spontaneously started describing myself as, "Oh yeah, I'm a friend of the process." Hmm. You know, I'm here. You know, here as a consultant. Like that was that was the language that started coming to me, and and I think it really was a reflection of. Um, that I had. I basically I had been trained in one particular way of doing evaluation. I've been doing that for for many years. I was not really connecting with it, although I saw the promise and potential in it. That's why I was still hanging on. But all of these kinds of relationships, the three of you, also Kim Vanderwerf, basically everyone who's been on the podcast in mm-hmm. some way,
3: um,
1: had prompted me to, in some ways, maybe willfully forget how to be an evaluator and have to start over from scratch and just evaluate like a human being. Yeah. Um, and that very much feels like the journey that I've been on.
2: When I was an aid worker, that was my first uh, exposure to evaluation Was doing international aid. And I would see this phenomenon all the time. And it took me forever to figure it out, but you would, everybody knew when the evaluators showed up because it was always a white lady with a clipboard. Um, and, you know, and she's walking into these tiny villages in Africa, and suddenly everyone knew what to do. Like, kids are taken out of their regular clothes and put in the worst thing they have. Everyone lies around like their legs are broken. Um, and I'm like, what is going on? And what they eventually told me was that the evaluators were uninterested in anything but disaster and trauma. Mm. And if they did not portray disaster and trauma, the evaluator would say, well, there's nothing to see here. These people don't need any help. There's no interesting story and just leave. And so they would act like things were worse than they were um, just to maintain the evaluator's attention. It was a very backwards, uh, backwards sort of process, but it, it made me realize how influential evaluators can be for good or for for ill. Um, what I also found out is that they had their own systems of evaluation that worked for uh, their villages and their tribes that they had been doing for millennia and served their purposes that got, never got onto um, you know any sort of evaluation report that came um, out of there from foreigners. Uh, and so it, it just made me start really thinking about like what, again, who is this evaluation for? If it's for the people who are giving the money and they have purposes for being there that are, or are not aligned with the community, then that's one thing. If it's for the people whose lives are impacted by whatever it is that we're doing, that could be a very different thing.
3: So I actually have a list of six things that the evaluation field needs. Can I share my list? <laughs> Please. <laughs> Absolutely. Nothing like. <laughs> well, here, I'll give you a tiny, the tiny context is that um, one of the clients we work with, its they do work globally, and so um, we we're writing up a case study for Blue Marble. And I was looking at the Blue Marble Guiding Principles, Michael Quinn Patton's latest book. So I was looking and it's principles driven approach. And one of the principles is um, you need to have fidelity to your theory of transformation. And that's based on the premise that we're not actually trying to get systems changed. We're trying for transformation, right? That justice is a transformative act. And I thought, oh my goodness, what is our theory of transformation? I don't know. Like I think we keep working around concepts over and over, but we've never sat down to articulate what our theory of transformation is in our work. So I came up with um, a list of six things that I think um, don't add up to a theory, but are are embedded in the way that we do work. So one is that we support purpose-driven change. And one thing that drives me crazy about the field of evaluation is that it's program evaluation Mm -hmm. and it's focused on programs. And um, I'm driven by purpose, which is very different than driven by making good programs. So I think a switch from good programs and projects to purpose, and people can have different purposes. Um, Second, I think in complexity, we need to be guided by principles or values. I Mm -hmm. think they can come under different names, but being guided... Two specific indicators and outcomes is not the way through complexity. It's towards this purpose guided by the principles that provide the guide rails as we try to make decisions. So number one, purpose-driven, number two, guided. Number three, if we are accompanying people, there is, um, to use um, human systems dynamic language, there is an infinite game that we're playing. And so we are responsible for our own ongoing and infinite work, which is cultivating our own awareness about ourselves and our identities and how that impacts us and each other and which relationships can we show up for and which can't we and um, how do we care for ourselves and others? How do we share what we know? How do we speak truth to power, right? That is not project specific. To be a good evaluator, this is the stuff we need to be doing all the time and it never ends. Then we get into this finite space, which is a much more traditional valuation, but I think the switch to it is thinking about this finite space as co-created and facilitative space, right? So there's still usually a beginning of the contract and an end of the contract, and we're going to learn things and make sense of it and have recommendations and findings, but but that process can be top-down or it could be facilitative and co-creative. So what the finite game looks like, I think, can shift. So infinite and finite are numbers three and four. Number five is we need to locate the work differently. And Chris, this is to what you said before. Like We often locate the work in a building, in a project, in a headspace, and work is located in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds. It's located in place. It's located in spirit. It's located in culture and in story. Um, We tend not to look at those locations, so I think the field needs to broaden the idea of how and where this work is located. That's number five. And number six, uh, we need to trouble what counts as rigorous. Um, so in order for something to be rigorous, it should be appropriate. And that's sort of how we talk about culturally responsive. If something is culturally responsive and time responsive and, and rooted, then it's appropriate. Um, we think that creativity and the arts and healing should be part of what is counted as rigorous, um, being in relationship. So that's our, our sixth point, is that uh, we need to reclaim the word rigor and redefine what rigorous means.
4: I like those. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I, I think those are, um, you know, my mind immediately goes to the Kinevan framework, and so thinking about approaches in context, and mm-hmm. so you know the the things that these are pushed pushed against are actually appropriate in really high ordered contexts. So like that kind of evaluation, of course, still has a place, and so it's a it's mm-hmm. a question right. of, it's a question of locating ourselves in the, in context too, and and to that I would say a seventh. Maybe. I don't want to mess with yeah. the framework, but
3: nice another
4: one another one would be would be just being aware of our influence. And okay. and our you know, what we call we, we have a we have a book sort of a book club and workshops um, series that goes on here on this little island of a lot of white people live on this island. Very, very homogenous kind of community where I live. And uh, and so how we engage with um, reconciliation and indigenous territory that we live on the program we call knowing our place <laughs> mm. which has a great pun of like both knowing the names of the places right right are but also yeah. like where do we belong as settlers and i think that that's kind of like the seventh piece right it's like knowing our place mm. so knowing what what how we're influential um you know how we show up in communities with clipboards and you know because we're the representative of the extrinsic motivation that Everybody is gaming the system for, um, you know, if you walk into a room as an evaluator, which Carolyn refused to do, um, suddenly you become a massive attractor in that field and you fundamentally mm-hmm. change the nature to use right. dynamics language. You change the nature of the container and the conditions and speed of self-organization. People, Everybody self-organizes around the money. and But if you show up as a friend, yeah. people kind of like that's different. Like they either ignore you. It's like, we don't understand the role of friend in this project. Um, or they sort of go, Oh, well, you seem kind. <laughs> so, that, like, so just like knowing our place and operating from that, which also, um, which is in deeply informed by the infinite game of cultivating practice. Right. So c- constantly developing that self-awareness and understanding of who we are and all of this stuff. But then within the finite game, that version of that within the finite game of a project is mm-hmm. super aware of your place and your influence. Yeah. 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 So
3: yeah.
1: For our listeners and also our mm-hmm. co hosts who are less familiar with the HSD, the human systems dynamic approach, do you want to offer some very brief <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, definitions of uh, infinite game and finite game?
4: Yeah,
3: Chris, you're you the only certified associate. I'm a, a certified professional.
2: <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, fixing <clears throat> my tie. Well, while, while we're all here, um, Royce Holiday is one of the co-authors of uh, Human Systems Dynamics, and it's her birthday today. So. Oh, happy birthday, birthday Royce! Birthday, Roy.
1: Roy. On the day of recording, nice. we'll probably not on the to day Royce. that you're actually listening yeah. to. That, <laughs> but on the day of recording. <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: No. Yeah, right. the March the March Five Day. Oh, that's awesome! No. I didn't know that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Human Systems Dynamics is a body of work created by uh, Glenda Yang and her sister Royce Holiday and a number of other people. There's a large community, but um, Glenda and Royce are most strongly associated with it. And their book Adaptive Action is one of the classics that I offer people for working in complexity. Um, the the infinite and finite game that is a concept that they've borrowed and maybe someone can google um the guy who yeah i will but thanks but the big basic difference is is that we play we play these two kinds of games and if you're playing the wrong, wrong game uh you're in trouble so the finite game is is a game the rules are very uh highly they constrain the kind of action that you're engaged in um, and so that might be like um when you when you sort of it could be something as ordered as sitting down and following the instructions for building a Lego spaceship with your five-year-old. It's a finite game. It's over when it's over. You play. There's definitely play involved, um, if anybody who sat down with a kid and made a, a Lego thing. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not open in that same sense. An infinite game is, is, is like the game of life that you play. Um, Mm -hmm. so if a finite game is, is, you know, a 90 minute soccer match, professional soccer match with rules and referees and people arbitrating what's fair and what's not fair and all this, the infinite game would be what you find on the fields and the backlots and the beaches of the world where people throw a ball onto the ground and play and there's no time limit. There's no, and the goal is to play. And one of my favorite, like if I go with, um, if I go with a kind of take this into the arts world. It would be the difference between a scripted play and improv, but even more so um, It would be the pure end of the infinite game would be what Bernie Decoven called deep play Um, And we lost Bernie. I think last year or two years ago. He was an amazing guy He was one of the creators of new games and he has a website called deep fun and um, If you go and look at his website, he just offers you games all kinds of games in which human beings can just play. They're like infinite. They're like some, some of them are finite games and some of them just teach you about the infinite game of playing in life. So, I mean, what's, why this is all important is because there are the bounded finite spaces in which there is right and wrong. And, you know, we do have to deliver on projects and there are time limits and all this, and we can still be artists in that space, of course. It's great. But then there's the infinite game of as human beings and maybe as justice seeking human beings that we, exercise that justice muscle for the rest of our life, you know, right. train in that and we just become uh, committed to a principle like truth and beauty, right? Honesty and dignity. right? Um, and that we just look for the places to try that all the time. So that's the mm-hmm. infinite game. I hope that doesn't budge it too much. Who's the author? Yep.
3: Yeah. So shout out to James P. Karse, Yeah. Whose first edition of Finite and Infinite Game, A Vision of Life as Play and Possibility was published in 1986.
2: There you go. Where I think I see that come up the most in evaluation spaces is when uh, someone says, you know, we're going to do this program, and let's say we're going to address uh, some form of inequity, and it's a three year program and then someone else says well we are going to do a program and we are going to address racism and housing as a three year program and it's amazing how many things can be solved in exactly 3 years it's like this magic number right <laughs> and, but that is a kind of finite game mm-hmm. that you know these problems that are huge and complex and took hundreds of years to evolve can be solved in this or, or even address properly um, in this very sort of bounded amount of time. Mm. And so what we find ourselves saying to to clients all the time is that, you know, you're not going to get this in one shot. You know, this is going to be something that you're going to have to keep working at and keep working at for a long time. And for some of the organizations uh, who, are, who have a lot of money and a lot of power and are going to be around, or you know, governments, especially city governments, we say to them, like, it, if your intention is that this community ceases to exist in a couple of years, then it makes sense to have a program that only lasts for a few years, but we're pretty sure your intention is that that community will last effectively forever. So let's start talking about the infinite game in HSD language. How do you set up a relationship between a government and a community that works for, let's forget about forever, let's say 20 years, let's say 100 years. What kind of questions do we need to start asking to even set up? an engagement that's going to last that long and what we find is that a lot a lot of people just aren't really considering things in those terms uh it it's very it's a very strange sort of self-limitation that we see at least here in the states we see it quite a bit
4: Mm. and and so there's just two things i want to say about that andy is like the first is that's the category error I'm talking about, right? So seeing the infinite game as right. a finite game and breaking it down. And then the other image that um, Dave Snowden uses sometimes, which I really love, is the difference between an exoskeleton and an endoskeleton. Okay. If you look at biology and you look at the diversity of life forms, like if you have a exoskeleton, a skeleton on the outside and all the goo on the inside, you like, that's it, you're contained. That's, that's all you can do. So if you see homelessness as a three-year project to solve, you're gonna only look for solutions that exist within that three-year window, right? Because the, the drivers mm-hmm. of your action are so profoundly powerful mm-hmm. that they will restrict you. They govern um, what we call governing constraints. So they govern the design of your project and also your epistemology, like how exactly the you know thing happened. If it happened within the three-year window, awesome, put it in the report. If it's something that we started that's gonna bear fruit in 15 years, doesn't matter, right? It's like, that's not gonna help yes. us. The the endoskeleton, in other words, like the kind of skeletons we all have, where the bones are in the inside, drives like all of this diversity and and, and adaptability. Like we're massively adaptable because we can anything that grows from a generative skeletal structure. You know, the meat can look very differently. And so, um, and so those are like the principles that you're talking about, Nora, right? So the generative principles mm-hmm. um, create the endoskeleton out of which we, div- we, we create diversity. And some of that diversity, you know, the nature of diversity is that some of it is gonna be more successful than others depending on the context, right? That's fit, right? So um, it's not fit like I'm gonna beat you down, it's like fit for context. And so because the context changes, we need to be constantly seeing what is fit in this moment, what approach works right. here, what approach works here. Right. Now, the, the interesting thing for me, or what, another kind of interesting thing for me about all of that, is that you talk about the 20 or the 100 year window. And then, I, and then just as you said that, because I'm looking at you guys on the screen, I'm looking at Andy here on the left and then Nora here on the right. And I'm like, there's a tension between those two things of the principle in the moment. Am I enacting, am I choosing right now justice? And also okay. 100 years, can I have view right. right. that what I do in Absolutely. this moment might take us in that direction too. So it's like right. living that tension between now and then. And for evaluators, you can't tell whether you're going to have that effect in 100 years. But the forward-looking expression of a principle in this moment is a thing that an evaluator, as an accompanist, can help you
2: with. Right. That is a big part of the reason why... Mm-hmm we have so many artists working with us is because the solutions to a lot of the things that we're being asked to investigate these days have never actually happened. We don't know what equity and justice looks like in spaces in America. We, we don't, you know, no one has ever achieved that, but an artist specializes in imagining something that is not there or does not exist and bringing it to life, or at least describing Mm. how that would happen. And so that's what I do as a novelist. We have dancers, we have painters, we have all sorts of people working with us and all of us in one way or another say like, you know, for me, it's that we don't have agreement around the words that we're using. What would it even look like if we did? And that's what I think about a lot in evaluation. For one of our colleagues, she says, our bodies are assaulted daily by all of the dysfunction in our society. What would it look like if our bodies were well taken care of and whole? And that could be like if you're experiencing homelessness, if you're uh, experiencing inequity in a st- in a STEM profession, or any number of ways. Like, what would that look like and feel like? And so, that is for us. That is where arts-based work starts mm. coming in because we have to describe something that it literally doesn't exist
4: mm. can you speak the name of that, can you speak the name of that brilliant colleague
2: <laughs> that is sandy augustine nice um and she is this amazing choreographer dancer mm. um uh, arts activist and she leads all sorts of uh amazing interventions uh with people Nice. yeah
4: Oh, I was wondering if it was our friend Wendy Morris also who might be well, and, who's another brilliant with, body based and
2: also with us is yeah. our friend <laughs> Wendy Morris who does all kinds of incredible things uh, and thinks about a lot of uh, a lot of that uh, same sort of yeah do you know do you know do
4: you know I saw Wendy um, I worked with her once and we were um, I love Wendy um, and. She she does this gesture harvesting, which is so interesting, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So it was like this. So what that is to explain it to our our co-hosts who have never seen this um, is that you know uh, she was doing a a, <laughs> a keynote. There was a keynote presenter or a presentation, a story actually. I think it was a, a collective story harvest. And what Wendy that's what it was. And it was my friend Tolka who was telling this story about. The origins of the art of hosting practice, and and Wendy said, I'll I'll harvest the gestures. Other people were harvesting turning points in creativity and all this other stuff, conflict. And Wendy, and then what what Wendy did was, as a choreographer, she just made notations of the way Toka was using his hands and his body, and times he turned his head a certain way, or pointed, or did you know I'm making gestures with my hands as I'm doing this, and then she fed them back, and she had us all stand, and she led us in the dance of Toka's. Um, she left the mm-hmm. dance of Toka's presentation without any words, just the gestures that he used. Mm-hmm. And this is profound, like profound for to experience that on a body level. And I think very profound for Toka to have this reflected back to him, you know, which is a really a very daring and vulnerable mm-hmm. thing to to have done. So I you know, I love I love that that you know, like sort of. Built, bringing out where the bodies were and how they acted in any given moment, um, and then I was just as as you were as talking about why artists are so important. I was wondering, Nora, if you wanted to include in the definition of rigor that an evaluation that lacks imagination is is not a rigorous. We mm. rigor. um, mm-hmm. require a kind of imagination to be able to see mm. these things. Like imagination is so important, even if we create fictitious scenarios of where all of this goes, it helps us to ask better questions of what we're seeing. Right. Right.
3: So I want to for our mm-hmm. listeners, I I want to say that I've for me, and I don't know if this is true for, y- for you, Chris and Andy, that um, a reason I draw on complexity concepts from David Snowden and human systems dynamics concepts from Glenda and Royce in the HSD community is that I think that evaluation as it was taught to me, and I have a PhD in evaluation, so I've spent a lot of time in classrooms thinking about evaluation from that perspective, is taught more with the exoskeleton model. And so the drivers and the levers are within our control or the control of staff. And I didn't learn a lot of tools um, for an endoskeleton. And so I need to know, how do people really change? You know, the first time I did a systems evaluation, I realized that the organizational chart and the self-organization and power flows in the system were radically different. But I had been taught to deal with paper-based organizational charts and what these other Ways of thinking and frameworks that are complexity-based and human-based help me do is be a better predictor of how people are going to act in uncertainty. Predictor, facilitator,
2: yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I I just, Nora, thank you so much for saying that. And as someone who has also Trained as an evaluator first. I think I tweeted this the other day. Is like, I'm starting to believe that, that the people who are like least prepared to do evaluation are the people who trained as evaluators. Yes. <laughs> um, and why? Um, because yeah, when you said that, I'm like, yeah, exactly. We, we have been taught to put boundaries on things. We've been taught to make boxes of things. We've been taught to make ourselves boxes of things. Mm. And when I think about the, the sort of transformation that I've been part of for myself for my own work for the last few years it's almost because it's been very uncomfortable it's been very difficult to wrap my head around like what is it like to take what is an exoskeleton and turn it into an endoskeleton just to imagine the the weird biology that's involved in that (laughs) um (laughs) and the the best that i can go with there the, this is maybe this is my my metaphor that will carry me through. This is to think of that endoskeleton as a chrysalis. Mm-hmm. Think of that as there there is a soup inside of that endoskeleton that can reorganize itself and 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 bust out and, and come out of there doing something differently. Because I, I the thing that I was thinking when you were talking about those now we have six six plus one things. <laughs> um, I keep thinking about our. Uh, well in in the Canadian Evaluation Society we have our competencies um, and AEA also now has I can't remember if they're called competencies or guiding principles or we're trying to create structures in our evaluation communities we are trying to create structures that say this is what we do this is who we are and I have had very mixed feelings about that Um, I there's a part of me that is deeply uncomfortable even knowing all of this thoughtful work that's gone into it and the fact that all of the people who are involved in creating these structures are doing it um, from the best possible places of wanting things, wanting the work to be good, wanting the work to be helpful, wanting us to to be a community. But I think what I'm realizing is it feels like these structures have been built as as exoskeletons. They feel like they're boxes that we're putting ourselves in, not as enabling starting points like I I don't know that that list of six plus one I feel like that would be a a better place for me to start when I'm thinking about what are the competencies I need to be an evaluator for the time we're in right now Uh, because they feel generative they feel like they're a place for me to go from not a place for me to stay within and that just feels Mm -hmm. so important
2: when I was uh when I first got inspired to write the novel that I wrote is because of an image I had in my head, which was a woman walking down the street carrying something on her head. And in my imagination, I zoomed out and saw that she was carrying a sailing ship on her head. Um, And that's what got me to write the novel. But that was a journey of four years and two complete drafts of the novel that I threw in the trash. Um, And what I learned from working in a PhD program, but then going through a master of fine arts program myself was that we're taught to think about what we do very different differently. The PhD students, and I am guilty of giving out this advice back in the day, are, are very much taught to pare down big problems into something solvable, to put boundaries around it, and to sort of limit their inquiry to something that is uh, more manageable. Uh, MFA students, on the other hand, we were taught to expand ourselves until we could answer the question. And then we're taught how to be patient with ourselves, how to let ourselves fail, as I did a couple of times before I got it right, or right-ish, how to sort of maintain a sense of self and maintain momentum in a process that may turn out to be nothing, or it may take six months, it may take 10 years for you to figure this thing out. And it's, again, it's just a very different way of, of thinking about ourselves. So, again, going back to your question of, like, what does evaluation need? I think we need more people who can sit comfortably with discomfort and sit with uncertainty and sit with ambiguity and explore that and see what happens rather than sort of rushing to the end and saying, you know, we're going to figure this out at the end of our three-year program.
4: Mm. But and and it it doesn't it doesn't necessarily need evaluators to be different from what's inside that. No, that exoskeleton. It just needs them to be in relationship with people that aren't. No, mm. and like get smarter by being in community,
2: right? And certainly. Than, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
4: No, no, go ahead.
2: Well, and you know, for anyone listening, if you're in that exoskeleton space right now, like no one is ever mad at a caterpillar because it hasn't turned into a butterfly yet. You know, like don't don't get down on yourself or don't get, you know, don't get, don't feel like you're being judged because that's not where you are. Like everybody, I think what we're all trying to say in one way or another, is that evaluation needs to be as complex as the lives of the people that we're working with, and everybody changes over the course of their lives. And any evaluation that mm-hmm. says nothing here has changed or nothing should change feels ridiculous and weird. Um, and so, yeah, you know, don't like don't feel bad that that's not where you are. It's fine. Wherever you are, it's fine. Probably unless you're Donald Trump then you're not. Fine.
4: Well, well, and, and 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 it's and and yes and and you're even more fine in the right context. So so I'm not the right person for every project. Right, right. To be clear, yeah, you, say you know that all I mean the time. Right. And so that's, and that's actually easy to say around like not justifying wealth and power, like as you said earlier, Andy, but it's, it's a lot harder for me to say on projects that are super interesting to me, yeah. I might not be the right person, but I know that because I've been involved in that, that infinite game of cultivating practice that Nora is talking about mm-hmm. in the principles of transformative change or whatever we're calling that. But I think, cause I think that that's we are all working on ourselves. We're always doing that, and the more you do that, the more you get. Um, the more I do that, the more I get to see where I'm appropriately helpful and where I'm not. Um, and and when something I have to offer can be complemented by other people, which it always can be, <laughs> for sure. Um, just finding those folks and 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 offering something together. Yeah, uh,
3: we always work in teams.
4: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Ditto. I
3: I also think that is uh, something we've that's been born of complexity, and of there being no project that um, that can be served by one identity or one set of experiences, and so or one way of knowing. So um, we always work in teams, and actually, what sometimes um, makes our clients stop is we build in redundancies. Mm-hmm. So we're not focused on efficiency as the best way to be. We're focused on overlapping so that we can hold something that's whole and, and informed by multiple perspectives. Yeah. So, yeah.
4: no such thing as I'm redundancy. really thinking a lot about <laughs> spaciousness. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying there's no such thing as redundancy and complexity.
2: Right. Um, Yeah, we've thought a lot about spaciousness lately and what that looks like and how to talk about it. Um, And so we've been talking about, uh, like in America, we have these corn mazes. People love the corn mazes and you get to the corn maze and you like navigate your way through the corn mazes, you know, often as quickly as you can. And what we've been saying is like, well, what if you get to a maze but the point of the maze is not to get through it as quickly as possible. What if there's art hung throughout the maze and you're just there to consider the relationships between the things you're seeing. And maybe you don't do the whole thing at once. Maybe you just do a corner of it and leave, or maybe you wander around for a while and sit down on a bench and talk with friends. Um, And so you know, when we think about doing these evaluative processes, there's usually this efficiency built in. Like we want to get as much data as we can, as quickly as we can, um, organize really well so that everything sort of funnels into the answers we want. And what we're starting to say, I think now, is well, what if we pause to consider ourselves and the relationships we're in before rushing to do any particular thing? now, getting clients to pay for us to do nothing its a whole different question, right. <laughs> but uh, we're, we're trying to find ways to build that into what we do.
1: It's reminding me, uh, there's a book I've been reading by a, a theater director, Anne Bogart, um, on just, it's essays on theater and storytelling, and she talks, she has a whole chapter mm-hmm. around spaciousness, and she talks about the concepts of chronos and kairos, which are both Greek words Mm, for time counter. and and mm. with chronos being that more um quantitative time like the time that you would tell with your watch of how many seconds how many minutes how many days and then um kairos being the time the feeling of time you get when when you're hanging with a, a beautiful group of friends and you're just enjoying that like oh wow it feels like you know we've had forever together, or it feels like time is passing so quickly because we're enjoying each other so much. It's that more flexible, qualitative sense of time. Um, and one of the things she talks about, because I, theater, I I think theater is such a great learning space for all kinds of things, um, the importance of managing Kronos um, in order to have Kairos. Oh,
2: wow. Yeah, I like
3: that.
1: Um, That we aren't, it's not about picking one or the other. We do live in a world of constraints. We live in a world where there are, where we operate in three-year funding cycles, um, where we have certain systems that are set up to help us. We have a workday that begins and ends. And we all like that we have a workday that begins and ends. (laughs) Um, And it's by attending to those, um you know specific linear time-based kinds of constraints tending to them well not letting them drive and own the process but tending to them and and keeping them in balance that gives us the space to have that time together because i i feel that i i want to do relationship building with clients and i also know that they're r- busy running programs that they have lots of expectations and pressures yeah. and we can't for all that we want to spend hours whiling away chatting Sometimes it's like, well, we we have an hour and, and we need to make a decision, and so it's like, how do we how do we do the best of both? How do we get how do we get both and mm-hmm. of our Kronos and our Kairos in those moments?
3: I love that. I love one. Before I say this, I think we should put together a reading list at the end of. I think this this podcast should come out with a reading list because we've already mentioned a <laughs> dozen books.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, It'll be in the show notes.
3: Yes. So something that we hear a lot, which is just triggers me these days, is the idea of, well, we can't do that because we need to be good stewards of our dollars,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and um, that tends to be code for Chronos. Mm-hmm. We need to get for the most for our In money. Finite games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and good is assumed to mean efficient return on investments. A controlled finite game, um, and so I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> Let's unpack what you mean there, because actually, I don't. We don't have a like Andy said. Or we don't have agreement on what those words mean, yeah. right? But it's often assumed that we do.
4: Yeah, and that also. I mean, I just think come back to this: the outcomes of infinite games. Um, I do an exercise when I'm teaching Knevin that um you could you could do anybody listening could do with a client if you want to explore the difference between these two things so basically basically the short form of form of it is here's two different systems so one of them is like get a group of people and ask them to line themselves up by height organize themselves by height that's the framing i use and we see what happens people organize themselves by height and it happens pretty quickly and you get this pretty, pretty clear sense that sometimes dictators emerge because that's actually helpful like you stand here stand here stand here and then somebody comes along and validates it and goes look it's oh you got to move you got to move and that's the evaluator and <laughs> and then I tell people I parlay those roles into million dollar businesses because if you tell people what to do and you externally validate their actions you can make a killing um so that's a finite game right and then we're done and it's good and we're like ah, satisfied we achieved our outcome and then I play the infinite game which is some version of the systems game um many different versions of this one you can play but basically where you begin in a circle and you find two other people and you can you can uh one version of this uh let's see the simplest version of this is the instruction that i give is you have to move to a place in the room where you are equidistant from these two people so you're in a point where you're the same distance away from the two people you choose and you don't communicate who those people are right and so then you you, then you just as a facilitator just go right and people go and they You know, of course, that system never stops moving because the moment somebody in the system moves, everything is interconnected. The moment something in the system moves, everybody else has to move and shift. And what happens is people um, commonly, people discover and experience lots of frustration because especially if you even train them into a a little job that has a solution, they're looking for, there must be a place in the room where we can all be equidistant from each other, right? So some people are going hunting for that. And some people just get totally anxious at the amount of movement that's happening and they freeze or they drop out and stop playing. Um, Other people experience the joy of it, right? Um, And what everybody does is they create strategies. So at some point you can ask to people like what emerged in this space was a whole bunch of strategies for dealing with this, playing this game right? That nobody walked into the room going, oh, I know exactly how I'm going to play the system game today. It's just in being in the game, you develop a strategy. So some will go, oh, I realized I didn't want to move much. So I went right to the far end of the room. And it was like, at that point, the distances were negligible. Or other people were like, oh, I just tried to get in between my people. I thought that would be a fun place to be. Um, Some people misinterpret the instructions and they try and Get in between them rather than be equidistant. And so it's, there's all this like chaos bubbling. But the system's connected and it's producing a ton of knowledge, including mm-hmm. delight and anxiety. And there's like an emotional spectrum mm-hmm. that appears in the room. And that can only emerge from an infinite game in that particular way. There's no particular outcome to measure at the end of the day, right? But, but there's a whole bunch of stuff coming up that you can draw attention to. And then you can ask people, like, what was it like to play? And what if I told you that the purpose of this exercise was just to play? How would that change the use of your time? Like, feeling the value of your time mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Right. And so I'll often do that. And then we'll run the exercise again, and people will just play. And then all the pressure's off them. Right. And what they discover is that this could be fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't want to seem like this is naive, but these are actual outcomes that are produced by, by processes. And sometimes what happens is the anxiety of working in uncertainty and a volatile and constantly disequilibrium f- form of structure, the anxiety that's produced there will produce a backlash by people who say we need to spend our money better. We know right. I'm afraid of the anxiety. I don't want to just play. I want to achieve justice in America now. Right. <laughs> right? Or at least within the three year window of our project. Right. And I don't feel like that's what we're doing. And what if we were just like knitting together a closer community? And that's where that hundred year thing would, would be helpful. Right. <laughs> you know, a hundred years, do we want to say we did 33 year projects? Right.
3: Well, yeah. And I want to, um, this is something we talk about a lot that with that, this is a whole different podcast episode is, is rethinking our identities. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a social justice worker? Does it mean that you're always working from a sense of urgency? If you're doing successful work, does it mean it's hard? Does could anything generative or useful happen out of play or is play something you do when you're not doing useful work? And so I, I talk a lot about, being a woman and having my value tied to pleasing people and serving people. And it's often really hard for me to say no or make someone upset or feel uncomfortable because in a way I'm diminishing my idea of what my worth is. Um, so we, we also talk a lot about how I, our sense of identity, which we may have consciously or unconsciously um, taken on, is also something that holds these systems in place and can be really hard for us to see. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. so speaking of finite game um <laughs> we are coming to the end of our uh episode recording time uh, and i think that's a beautiful place to land off on i think we started with a jumping off question and nora you've brought us around to another jumping off question and maybe we need to have a whole <laughs> other episode mm-hmm. um right yeah. and i just want to take a moment though uh, before we close out to check in with each of you and just say, uh, tell us something that's happening that's cool. It can be something that you're doing or something that someone else is doing that you want our listeners to know about. Always keeping in mind that there's a slight delay between when we record and <laughs> when these episodes <laughs> actually go up, although hopefully within the next week.
4: Okay, so I'll just, um, I will uh, do two things. I'll plug um, uh, a workshop that my partner Caitlin and I are running in June, uh, 2020 in on bowen island um, which is on working with complexity inside and out so um, sort of answers a bunch of these questions and really looks at that infinite game as well as working with systems so it's the inner, inner part of us as complex systems and then how we interact um, so we would invite anybody to check that out and you can find more at um, chriscorrigan.com which is my website um, where my blog is and other things, and then in terms of what other people are doing, I wanna I wanna hold up what the Squamish Nation is doing in Vancouver right now, with a real estate development called Senalk, um, which is building something like six thousand units of rental housing in the city of Vancouver, and doing it from a regenerative and restorative perspective, and it is a game changing moment in Canadian indigenous relationships to see what's happening there so those of you that aren't aware of it just look you know you could google squamish nation development and you'll find you'll find about this but i just want to lift that up because in this place where we are in our country right now um we need to we need some we need some news that <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, folks that are doing long-term transformative work Um, especially in this space because we're in a hard time right now in terms of indigenous and non-indigenous and settler relations. And um, I want to hold that example up. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are friends of mine and my landlords also, (laughs) my hosts here in the territory and people I deeply respect. So.
3: Thanks Chris. Um, I would say actually uh, this is not going to happen in the next week, but Andy and I are trying to wrangle our ideas into a book. Yes. Um, so we've been saying this for a while, but it's happening right now. Is that we're taking Michael Quinn Patton's early 1980s book, Creative Evaluation, and writing the 2020 version. So um, we hope to have that drafted and, nice. and by the end of the year. Yeah. Right. We're trying to write a chapter a week every two. Weeks. Anyway, that's coming. Um, the other thing that I'm excited about that I think is also coming is that we are principles driven and our principles are being become, learn and unlearn, remember and create and disrupt and liberate. And so we're doing more than evaluation at Inspire to Change. And what we're really thinking about now is how to bring creativity to everything we do. So um, it's not named yet, but developing some sort of creativity lab or institute where we think about what is creative well-being creative leadership creative evaluation and creative engagement and our idea also is that we would put out a set of papers or sort of conference proceedings once or twice a year that say here's the state of what we know about creativity and and complexity and, and change so that's underway it's really nascent but i just have this feeling that it's coming and that you'll hear more in the next couple months
2: yep Um, and then the, I think the other thing that we're working on, uh, that we want to give some attention to is that in our work, both in evaluation and facilitation and coaching, we see a lot of different organizations trying to deal with very similar issues. Um, and equity has been a huge issue for almost all of our clients this year. So we are going to pull together a convening of our clients and others who are interested in this work uh, to talk about equity this year, Um, like a one-day thing where we just say, like, here is what we're seeing sort of across the board in people's efforts with equity, and then how can we work together to change this system instead of each organization and each program trying to address it individually. Um, and then I think every year as we see issues that are sort of going across the board, we'll have a, a similarly, uh, themed conference. And so that will probably be later this year, probably in October or so.
0: All well, great.
2: And I, and I do have to say one, th- sadly, one thing that got canceled, if, uh, mm-hmm. we, if you heard about that on the last podcast I was on, I was, uh, We were planning to do a decolonizing writing workshop um, talking about the decolonization of uh, or how to decolonize creative writing, especially the novel. It was supposed to be uh, held in the birthplace of Christopher Columbus, which is Genoa, Italy, but that is not happening anymore. So uh, if you were hoping to do that, I'm sorry. Uh, We're going to try again next year.
0: Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, thank you all for an amazing conversation. Um, I'm looking forward to I, I always like to to go back and listen to the podcast after they've been recorded, but this one I think I'll just put on loop for like a couple of times because there's just <laughs> um, really rich conversations, lots of ideas, good reading lists. I think this will probably keep keep me occupied for the next like year just trying to like decipher everything, but lots lots to pull out here. So thank you all for the for an amazing conversation here.
1: Thank you so much
3: thank you thank for, you see you at the next one <laughs> we
0: should do this more often <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's it for this episode of eval cafe thank you to all our listeners check out the rest of our episodes on pinecast itunes or google play or by going to our website evalcafe.wordpress.com don't forget to follow us on twitter at evalcafe, and if you want to drop us a line you can find us at evalcafe.podcast at gmail.com. Musical credits go to Kevin MacLeod at com for Poppers and Prosecco, our intro theme, and Dispersion Relation, our outro, as well as to Tim at TabletopAudio.com for the lively cafe ambiance in our intro. This is, we are, this is not fully part of the episode. So how, how the episode will actually begin is no. we'll do our intro. <laughs> but just so you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh we really should do a hackers only feed. Yes. <laughs> yes. For yeah. Yeah, build Yeah.